This is KOOP HD1 HD3 Hornsby. The following was homecrafted and recorded on August 31st and September 1st. Welcome to the Austin Chronicle show. My name is Kim Jones and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. Since September 4th, 1981, in fact, that's right, this week marks the 40th anniversary of the Austin Chronicle. We have a special section in this week's issue reflecting on some of our favorite stories from four decades in print, and you can find that issue on newsstands and online now. We're awfully proud to still be standing and we could not have done it without the support of our readers, our listeners, and community partners like KOOP. So on with the show. The subject of our second segment today is emo rock nostalgia, but first up we are talking with Austin Chronicle staff writer, Austin Sanders. Austin covers city hall, public safety, criminal justice, and a whole mess of things for us. And today we're going to be talking about criminal indictments and the shooting death of Maurice Da Silva. Thanks for being here, Austin. Thanks for having me on, Kim. So the indictments came down last Friday. Can you explain the case? Yeah, so this stems from a police shooting on July 31st of 2019 at the Spring Condominiums downtown. Four Austin police officers responded to a 911 call at the condo. Maurice Da Silva, who lived at the condo, was reported to be acting erratic and unstable. Da Silva had a history of mental illness. So this was not, you know, unusual behavior for the neighbors who called 911. And in fact, one of the neighbors who called specifically requested a mental health officer respond to the call because they were familiar with the Silva's behavior and mental health issues. So these four officers respond and they eventually engage De Silva and two of them, officers Christopher Taylor and Carl Krisha end up shooting and killing De Silva, who was armed with a knife, although, you know, there's kind of conflicting reports on what he was doing with that knife. The De Silva family and the attorneys representing them say that he was only threatening himself. He was not a threat to anyone else. The attorneys for the officers argue that he, you know, was acting erratic and unstable and had a large knife and so was a threat to others. And so these two officers opened fire, hitting him multiple times. Maurice was taken to Del Seton Medical Center where he later died of his injuries. And it's a really tragic case where someone was undergoing a mental health episode and instead of being helped by the police was engaged and ultimately killed. And of a special note, in this case is Christopher Taylor. If that name sounds familiar to listeners, it's because he was indicted on a separate murder charge in a separate case earlier this year, because on April 24th, 2020, he shot and killed Michael Ramos in Southeast Austin. So this is in fact, Officer Taylor's second murder indictment in a year for fatal shootings that occurred about nine months apart, which is unprecedented in Austin history and is really sending shockwaves through the local community. 
So am I right in thinking that the officers that responded, this is in the De Silva case, that they had zero mental health crisis training amongst the four of them? Yeah, yeah. Before I talk about the details of the case, I just want to make sure and note that what I'm describing is from a civil lawsuit that was filed by the De Silva family against the two officers and the city of Austin. It's unrelated to the grand jury proceedings, which by law are sealed and not visible to the public. So I don't know what the grand jury saw that chose to indict Taylor and Krisha. The details I'm relating are from the civil lawsuit. And yeah, so basically what the attorneys argue is that these officers were not trained to deal with someone undergoing a mental health crisis. And in fact, there was an officer who had that specialized training, according to the family attorneys, who was available to respond to this call, but for whatever reason did not respond. I'm trying to get clarification from the Austin Police Department on what happened, why that person didn't respond. But these four officers did respond to a call where a person was kind of banging on the doors of the condo with this large knife. Several 911 calls relating to it had come in. When the officers arrived on the scene, they talked to some neighbors and they talked to a condo employee and got a sense from those conversations that this was a person with a history of mental illness who appeared to be undergoing some kind of mental health crisis. At some point, Maurice Da Silva, who was in his own apartment at the condo, left and headed to the fifth floor of the building, which has the condo's gym and other shared space from other residents. And when this happened, the officer's attorneys say that the situation really changed. This was no longer a barricaded suspect situation where the officers could take more time in addressing the situation. There was now a person wielding a weapon potentially on a floor with other people. So they had to act faster, the defense attorneys say. So they decided to take the elevator up to the fifth floor to engage the Silva. In the elevator, they devised their strategy, which was basically, there was four officers. One of them would remain unarmed to try and subdue the Silva if needed. One officer would have their taser ready to fire, to have a less lethal use of force option available. And then the two other officers, Krisha and Taylor, would have their firearms ready in case lethal force was needed. When they arrive on the fifth floor, the elevator doors open and De Silva is standing across the hallway, staring into a mirror with the knife held to his throat. At this point, the officers begin shouting commands at De Silva for him to drop his weapon. And from here, there's kind of conflicting accounts of what happened. The De Silva family attorneys say that De Silva dropped or lowered the knife, I should say, from his throat, which in their minds was compliance with the officer's orders. He didn't you know, drop the weapon to the floor, but he did lower it, which in their view was compliance. And then he begins to turn toward the officers, at which point they fire upon him, including the lethal shots. What the police officer's attorneys say is that lowering the weapon from his neck was not compliance with the order. Furthermore, Maurice da Silva not only turned around, but when he turned around, he actually began to take steps toward 
the officers, which the officers viewed as a threat to themselves and so used force. It should be noted, however, that the officer with the taser did fire one taser at Da Silva, but instead of giving that less lethal round time to take effect, to see how it would affect Da Silva, the other two officers, Krisha and Taylor, opened fire, which the family attorneys say, you know, was excessive and the officer should have given time for the less lethal option to play out to see what would have happened. So that's kind of the basic facts of the case. There is both security cam footage from the condo and body cam footage from the officer's body-worn cameras. None of that has been released to the public. I don't know for sure if the attorneys in the civil case would have seen it. It's reasonable to conclude that they would. That's something that they can't talk about publicly, just like the district attorney can't talk about evidence presented to the grand jury publicly. But it's reasonable to conclude that the grand jury that chose to indict these officers would have seen that footage, which would really tell a clearer story of what happened leading up to Maurice De Silva's death. Austin, this case is part of a larger conversation going on in Austin right now about what some people view as a pattern of excessive use of force by police and also of the Austin Police Academy's curriculum and what many perceive as an overemphasis on a paramilitary approach and a lack of emphasis on de-escalation techniques. Can you talk about what's going on with the police academy right now? Yeah, in fact, what you described is exactly what the De Silva family attorneys are alleging in their civil suit, that this shooting, fatal shooting, was a reflection of APD's pattern of police brutality and insufficient training for officers to respond with de-escalation tactics in these tense situations. And yeah, this is something that the city council has picked up on for more than a year now. They ordered actually in late 2019, a really holistic review of the entire police department, which included an audit and revisions to the police academy, which would include primarily addressing the curriculum and the academy culture, which has been criticized in recent years by council members, as well as former cadets who actually participated in the academy and dropped out because what they endured was abusive and harassing, according to them. But basically, the way to describe it, critics say that the academy trains officers to be basically a paramilitary force in the community. Rather than emphasizing de-escalation techniques, they are taught aggressive ways of interacting with the public, are too quick to resort to violence rather than talking to people and trying to calm tense situations, which is the main goal of revising the police academy curriculum. The video materials they use to train officers is to move away from this warrior mentality where officers are kind of trained that when they go on shift, they are entering a war with their community. To shift away from that mindset into more of a guardian mindset where they are trusted to guard the civil rights, the lives, the property of people living in Austin, the community that they are sworn to serve. That process is still ongoing. It's kind of hit some hiccups in recent weeks. The volunteers on the committees that are helping to revise the curriculum 
have shared frustrations with the process. Listeners can check our website for past coverage on that. But it really is central to the case here. Both fatal shootings that Christopher Taylor was involved in, the Michael Ramos and the Maurice De Silva shooting, criminal justice advocates say the outcomes could have been different if Taylor and other officers were better prepared, better trained in how to handle these tense situations using de-escalation rather than resorting to lethal force. Well, Austin, I think we are just about out of time, but you go deeper on this case in this week's issue. And like you said, you've been reporting on all of these issues with the police for quite a while now. And I know the story is still developing. So Austin, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks again for having me on. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. If you're just tuning in, this is the Austin Chronicle Show on Co-op 91.7 FM, community radio for Austin. We've been listening to Welcome to the Black Parade by My Chemical Romance, a song that my next guest calls the Bohemian Rhapsody of Emo Rock. Chad Switeki, thank you for being here. Thank you. So Chad, you wrote a story in this week's issue about the rise of DJ Emo Night, and I would like to start by having you just define emo. Oh, golly. I guess if you're a music fan of a certain age, anywhere from probably mid-40s to early 30s, you probably were somewhat adjacent to the rise in late 90s and early 2000s of bands such as Panic at the Disco, the Get Up Kids, Sunny Day Real Estate. Later on, you had bands like The Used and Taking Back Sunday who are, had very kind of emotionally naked, very sometimes down, sometimes high energy music, but it kind of had a certain flavor kind of musically that emo stood for emotional. And some of it was poetic, some of it was journal entries poured out into song. And, you know, in that time period from about the late 90s through certainly the mid 2000s and even onward, it was just a very, very tightly packed, very loyal fan base around that kind of music. It had some hot spots in Florida, especially, but it was kind of an all over the country kind of thing. And it had a very, very loyal, dedicated following for fans who were into that sort of thing. And then in your story you explore in the last few years, there's been sort of this rise of clubs hosting emo night. And I think Barbarella's was locally. Was that the first place to do that? Yes, that's right. They began with a night back in the summer of 2015 called Jimmy Eat Wednesday, which was a take on the band Jimmy Eat World, who are kind of, a, I wouldn't say founding fathers, kind of a very well-known band from that ilk. And it started kind of as an off-night experiment. Wednesdays are never a, a popular night at nightclubs and dance clubs. It's, and if you're a promoter, you kind of say, well, just give me an off night. And we'll see what we can make of it. And it was a hit right from the get-go. The club's management said that they wound up being understaffed the first night. They were in in no way prepared for it to be as popular as it was when it was started by one of their semi-part-time DJs who just had an idea to give this kind of thing a shot. And it's, it's been a very kind of loyal, reliable night on their monthly calendar. Most of these things are only monthly events at various clubs. And it just has held on. And then the fellow 
Alex Chavez, who started Jimmy Wednesday when he kind of got through the pandemic, kind of when we were able to congregate again and have events of various levels of safety and precaution, he decided to really kind of mash the gas and see how big this could go. So he currently, under his operation, has four monthly events going on in Austin and then elsewhere around Texas. And then there are some other groups that are also doing things, you know, other emo nights of slightly different flavors, but still the same general idea at venues around town. So, you know, whether they're in bars and nightclubs or at venues like the Empire Control Room or the Parish, this is definitely a thing that has a following and is, I don't know if we're kind of reaching critical mass, but it's certainly at a noticeable juncture, a noticeable point where they're easy to find and have a pretty loyal following. Can you sort of paint the scene of what one of these nights is like? Because there are a lot of them are at dance clubs. But when I think of emo, I do not necessarily think of, oh, yeah, I could dance. I mean, I couldn't really dance to anything, but still. (laughs) I mean, you kind of nailed it, right? It is kind of a fish out of water. How the heck does that work? Kind of question was in my mind. I've been to Jimmy Wednesday a couple of times. I was never a loyal email fan, but kind of appreciated some of that stuff and have gone and had an interesting, a good and interesting time just kind of experiencing that whole vibe because it's certainly not a concert, but it's not quite a dance night either. I mean, people are out on the dance floor celebrating what I call like channeling the music, you know, they're singing along in, in amongst their other, you know, their other celebrants of that music and you know, just kind of reliving a time from 15-ish or more years ago that was when they all had, didn't have mortgages, didn't have kids. And, you know, were, their biggest worry was what color they were going to dye their hair uh, that month. <laughs> I'm being excessively simplistic in my kind of summation there, but you get what I'm driving at. And, you know, we, we listened earlier to My Chemical Romance and that song, Welcome to the Black Parade, it's kind of, I mean, there are several songs that are kind of anthemic kind of rallies throughout the night but that one when it comes on and especially with its beginning it's kind of has this very singular you know it as soon as you hear its opening piano it's just the thing where everyone who's sitting down gets up and when it really kicks in it's just kind of again channeling is the best that i can come up with for how people are experiencing it and kind of what they're going through yeah, there are variations on it. The Emo Night Brooklyn folks, that name kind of gives, kind of belies the fact that they do stuff all over the country. And one of their partners lives here in Austin. Their events are a little more concert like, a little more kind of a hosted party. And they occasionally will have musicians from famous emo bands or well known emo bands come up and play some songs acoustically or just kind of help to host the night, kind of drive it forward. There are different ways with which this stuff is celebrated, but, you know, in, in all cases, it's, it's not a concert. It's not a dance night. It's some kind of weird, but still powerful facsimile of both. I love that channeling. That, that's such an interesting way to describe it. <laughs> but it's kind of close. Yeah. I asked you to pick another song for us to listen to. And you suggested I Write Sins, Not Tragedies by Panic at the Disco. Why don't you give us a little context for this? I mean, this is just another one of those anthemic songs from that time, from that early 2000s time period. I mean, this is a song and video that won 
video of the year from MTV when back when they played videos regularly. But it was, you know, just another like your Fall Out Boys, your your Paramours, your Taking Back Back Sundays. Kind of give the disco is kind of one of the old reliable kind of highlights from that crowd. And this is, I think, I mean, at least in my book, one of their most well-known songs that again get everybody moving when it comes on. Okay, this is I Write Sins, Not Tragedies by Panic at the Disco from 2005's A Fever You Can't Sweat Out. So what's interesting to me is how theatrical, how nakedly emotional, how vulnerable this sounds, which frankly is the reason why as an indie rock kid in 2000, why I gave a very wide berth to emo in general, but that's why most people are drawn to it. And I'm wondering if there is something about this particular moment that we're in, starting in the Trump years, bleeding into the pandemic years. Is there a reason why we are especially drawn to this kind of hard on your sleeve music right now? I mean, it could be that certainly. Yeah, I'm a hundred plus credits shy of my psychology degree, so I couldn't really tell you what's (laughs) going on within the psyche of the adherence of this stuff. I mean, it could just be kind of another flavor of nostalgia, which I mean, right now, aren't we all kind of hungry for that? We're all kind of hungry given yeah. the last 18 months that we've all experienced to, to kind of flash back to the time when things were at least seem easier. I mean, you know, no time is ever easy, but at least, you know, you think back to your twenties or teens and things seemed a lot simpler. So, I mean, it could be that. I don't know if the rawness and hard on sleeve sweater wet with tears kind of aspect of it is any more powerful or has any more efficacy than any other kind of music for which we kind of all experience some throwback pleasure. I mean, that's certainly an interesting theory. I've never really kind of sliced it that way, but I'll say sure. And I, I'm sure in lots of cases that is probably the case. Well, in the course of your reporting, you spoke with artists and journalists who were in the emo movement as it was happening. What is their relationship like to this wave of nostalgia? I guess complicated would be a good word to describe their kind of thoughts about it all. I mean, you know, no one is getting rich off of this nostalgia. Well, maybe, maybe the promoters are. But I think the musicians who kind of passed through that time period, you know, whether in Austin or elsewhere, kind of look at it with no one I think takes a dim view or a has a jaundiced view of it. But I think they also just kind of look at it like, huh, so this is a thing. Because, you know, anytime you kind of are ginning up nostalgia, a lot of the only the marshmallows out of the bowl of Lucky Charms, you're only getting the highlights, you're only getting the brightest parts of, of your memory. And so I think there's kind of and I'm generalizing here quite a bit, but I think there's a lot that's getting missed or overlooked when you're doing this. And I I don't know if we can really judge one way or the other, whether that subtracts from or invalidates, you know, what's going on or the power of what these nights are creating for the attendees. I think a lot of these musicians who went through that are in their mid late-ish forties, fifties in some cases. And so to have folks a generation younger now kind of stirring all that up and only getting the good stuff, getting the highlights, it's a little kind of almost oversimplified. Sure. I mean, although that's sort of the way of all things when they transition into classic rock status, as one of the musicians you interviewed described as like, okay, we're now classic rock. That <laughs> right. you, don't get the, you don't get the deep cuts. You get the radio hit. And hopefully that opens the door for younger generations 
to see what's behind the door in the dustier corners. We can hope so. And I think certainly the Texas Emo Club operation, the one that Alex Chavez started, you know, some of his nights feature live music, either tribute acts playing that stuff live or newer bands playing their own original material. So he's trying to use what he's created as a bit of a platform to kind of carry it forward a little bit while still using, you know, the nostalgia as a way to build a, a pretty interesting business. So, I mean, you can kind of admire and pay respect to what he's doing in terms of trying to shine a light on some new music too and give an opportunity for newer generation of quote-unquote emo bands to get some attention and build a new fan base. Well, Chad, I found your story just super fascinating. It is called Misery Business, the Cathartic and Unexpectedly Joyful Trend of Emo DJ Nights in Austin. And listeners, you can find it in this week's issue of the Austin Chronicle online and on newsstands now. Chad, thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Thanks also go to my first guest, Austin Sanders, to co-op engineers Bob Daly and Andrew Solon, and to Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson for writing our theme music. We're going to sign off today with a track from one of my favorites from the era. This is Perfect Lines by The Promise Ring. We'll be back next week.